0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. A big thank you to all the listeners as we hit the two month mark of the podcast. It has been quite the learning experience for me as I've navigated the path from this being just an idea to having 65 episodes and counting. The podcast is currently being downloaded in roughly 25 countries and between the podcast platforms and YouTube we have over 4000 downloads. I can't wait for CrimeCon 2023, where hopefully I can meet a fan or two and gain several more listeners. And today's episode focuses on the victim of a terrible and senseless crime because it was a suspect who got all the attention. But before we get into it, let's cover the business side of things. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrownproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on, Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The invention of the airplane has done more than just expedite travel around the world. During World War II, airplanes made warfare a true three-dimensional fight for the first time in history. Trench warfare was effective in World War I because although there were airplanes and lighter-than-air vehicles that could travel above the trenches, gaining ground with troops or machinery took a full-ground assault, something that could be repelled via direct and indirect fire over a contested area of ground. The result was because machine guns and semi-automatic rifles could mow down entire companies of soldiers across the lines, very little ground was gained or lost during the war. In fact, more U.S. soldiers died of the flu during the final battles of World War I than by enemy fire. But the advent of larger planes that could travel further changed the battlefield of World War II. While Germany's superior tanks rolled through opposition on the ground, their air force dominated the skies. But by 1944, Germany was stretched thin and was war-weary. They had held the mainland of Europe for four years, repelling attacks from the air by Allied forces and launching air campaigns in the Battle of Britain. Having lost a lot of experienced pilots and facing better and faster aircraft by the month, Germany was in a weakened position in 1944, and the Allied forces saw their opportunity to gain a foothold in Western Europe. If Hitler had to commit more troops to fight on a third front, military strategists believed his army would collapse and Berlin would fall within a year. The operation was called Overlord, and it was a big gamble. Allied troops would commit to attacking five beaches in the area of Normandy, France, and would have to counter a strong German defensive network of artillery and machine guns. Landing crafts, tanks, and troops would be vulnerable on their way to the beach and while on the beaches. Airborne infantry, another new tool for invasion commanders, could be flown over the defensive network and dropped into hostile territory the night before the invasion. Using the cover of darkness, troops could assemble and capture key roads, bridges, and disrupt enemy reinforcement efforts. The gamble was that if any portion of the attack failed, the other troops would be left in the wind and easy pickings to be captured or killed by the Germans. Brave soldiers and pilots loaded into aircraft on the evening of June 5, 1944, and took off from dark runways to cross the English Channel under the cover of night. German anti-aircraft batteries opened up on the defenseless unarmed cargo planes, and many soldiers were killed before they ever got to jump out of the plane. Those that did survive were scattered over miles of enemy territory in the middle of the night, had to escape and evade German patrols as they mustered enough men to complete their objectives. One of those paratroopers that landed on French soil that night was Charles Newman. The 19-year-old American was one of thousands who risked his life that day to end the oppression of Hitler's Third Reich. Sixty-one years later, he would once again be put in harm's way, but this time it wasn't on some soil in a faraway land, but his own house. A disturbed and greedy young man attacked him, and Charles fought for his life. This is the story of Charles Newman and the Halloween night of 2005. To set the stage for what is going to happen on that night, we must discuss what little is known about Charles Newman. He seemed to be an introverted guy and, for example, his obituary was only a couple of short lines in the local paper and it didn't mention a date of birth, place of birth, family members, etc. I was able to find that Charlie Newman was born on May 16, 1925 he would have been just barely 19 during D-Day in 1944. He did tell a friend that before D-Day he was ready to fight but wondered if he would ever see home again. However, he survived the war and it was said that after the war he returned home to Athens, Alabama and got married to his wife Nell and they had five children. A true post-war baby boomer producing family. It was said that he was a hard worker and established a career as a home builder. He built the house that him and his wife lived in and raised their family and it would be that same house he would be targeted in later in the story charlie was said to be very fit for 80 years old and worked out daily at the local seniors gym and a fitness center his wife passed in 1995 and it was said at the time that he was estranged from his children and grandchildren and so before we get into what actually is going to happen here this is sometimes the problem with researching these stories oftentimes when I look for more quote-unquote modern stories I look for stories that are occurred after 2000 and then I find one in 2005 and I don't realize it's been almost 20 years Uh, so in reality that is a little less modern than I actually would like but oftentimes they aren't covered as well, either, especially these singular crimes that don't really capture the national attention or, or anything along those lines. Now, some parts of this crime or, or this crime story, I should say, are going to kind of reach national attention. Uh, but most of it at the time was pretty local. And it was either a combination of Charlie being this kind of shut-in guy again his wife passes in 1995 so she's been gone for 10 years at the point our story begins it sounds like in that time period after his wife died he might have had either falling outs with his family or just the kind of distance was built between him and his family and because it said that he was estranged from his son and his grandson at this time so maybe it was just the one son he, he has uh, I think it's another son and three daughters. So maybe he was involved in the other children's life. But again, there isn't a lot of information about Charlie. And that's kind of one of the the downsides to this story is when you research it, all you find is about the, the suspect and what happened with the suspect. You don't get a lot about Charlie. So you know, I spent a, a good amount of time trying to dig up stuff about Charlie, and, and I was able to find a date of birth for him. I was able to find what a couple of friends said about him and kind of piece it together from there. But but in reality, I'm not getting a whole big snapshot of, of what his life was like between uh, even World War II and uh, 2005. It's just, you get these these little snippets here and there. So I'm putting that together. I just wanted to really get as much out there as I could, because even uh, one of his friends and an article that I read, uh, she wrote the local paper trying to get a write-up on Charlie and his life because she felt like there was, wasn't was a lot of attention given to Charlie in this case. And as I said, his obituary is the, is the shortest that I've seen. I get a lot of information from uh, obituaries. Uh, a lot of times that's where I will find date of birth, place of birth, family members, anything along those lines. His literally was That he passed away on october 31st 2005 and that's about it so uh, i really had to dig up the rest of the stuff but i got what i could out of that and uh, i said now there's going to be references to charlie being kind of this mean old man Uh, he definitely does seem to have somewhat of a out from, at least from the outside, kind of a Scrooge McDuck type uh, appearance to him. At least that's how he's described to a certain degree. Uh, He lives in this house, doesn't come out much. But then then you talk to some of his friends or, or you read the sources from some of his friends saying he's this energetic guy for 80. He works out every day. So he's definitely going out into the community. It just maybe he was one of those people that if you're close to him, you're close. But if you're not, you know, he keeps you some distance away. And we did see that a lot with a lot of World War II vets that returned, especially those that saw heavy combat or these paratroopers and, and the guys at D-Day, where they formed very strong, very close bonds to, to some of their fellow soldiers. And then some of those soldiers died. And it's just it's a an emotional toll that they go through and when they came home there there was obviously going to be things like ptsd and connection problems and all that kind of stuff and and we didn't have the resources we have today so a lot of these world war ii vets you know they they were just basically okay go back to being farmers or or working for the post office or whatever you were doing before you left for the war or you find a job when you get back and and yes you know you, you save the world per se but you know now you just go about your life. And, and again, there weren't the resources that soldiers have now. And I think a lot of that stuff carried with these guys. Um, my great uncle uh, was a decorated World War II veteran. And he came back and didn't talk about a lot of the stuff that he did during the war until he was kind of in his last years of life he got diagnosed with cancer so he knew the end was near and he wrote down in some memoirs some of the stuff that he experienced when he was over there and i mean some of it is just heart-wrenching some of the stuff that that he either had to do or that he did and he wishes he hadn't and uh, again it's something and he couldn't even talk about this stuff until he went to a 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. So this was in the uh, winter, it would have been of 94, 95, somewhere around there. Uh, and he met a bunch of his his fellow soldiers that he hadn't seen in like 40 plus years. And again, most of these guys, they just came back and, and kind of put their head down and just went forward with life as they could. And, and, but I think that, again, there's some long-term effects of that, that especially when, with Charlie losing his wife in 1995, I think, you know, once you lose somebody close to you and your rock and the person that, you know, that you love. And, I, and again, I'm making assumptions here. I don't know Charlie. I didn't know his wife. I didn't know their relationship, but I'm just basing it on most of the time, you know, he was with... It seems like he was with Nell, his wife for 50 years until she passed so when you're with somebody for 50 years usually when they pass and and there's a loss there there can be that return to just that isolated feeling and, and everything like that so what we have here again is charlie world war Two vet hard-working guy he's actually in pretty good shape for 80 years old and And he's got five kids and a whole bunch of grandchildren. And it's going to be one of those grandchildren that become one of the key points in this story. Uh, His grandson, who's named Derek Newman, had been friends with a boy named Andrew Lackey since the fourth grade. And at some point in time, Derek told Andrew that his grandfather, Charlie, had a vault in his house and it was full of cash and gold bars. And the vault was supposed to be a special room built under the staircase. And we'll get into it later in the story, but it's unknown if this was even true, but what is more likely this is gonna be a result of of a child or preteen or teens overactive imagination and one-up storytelling. Charlie's World War II veteran status and a nice house likely sold the validity of the story and the idea of Charlie living as some type of rich miser in his house was born. And so when I say this, you know, when you have, kids uh that that whole one-up storytelling somebody's gonna say hey i've got this rich uncle or this rich grandfather and he's got you know, a huge house and a couple fancy cars and and he's got all this money and and then you know it's gonna see another boy is gonna step up or girl and say oh yeah well, if my grandfather has this or that so it's it's unknown if that was the case here or if this is again just overimagined overactive imagination between Derek and Charlie and Derek's oh yeah my you know grandfather was in World War 2 and maybe he came back with all these gold bars that he took you know cuz there was a lot of war souvenirs that's that's something that in current time it's much more difficult for soldiers that are that were serving in say Iraq or Afghanistan or like when I served in Kosovo before we were leaving our our base in Kosovo, uh, we had like a full on investigation to every article that we were bringing back. So every piece of clothing, obviously your standard issue stuff, but any usually had a couple items of civilian clothing, you had, you know, some souvenirs, some stuff you bought at the the PX, um, maybe some stuff that you bought out in sector uh, at some of the shops or, or something some of the families gave you as a gift. But all that stuff got literally looked at piece by piece. You had to lay it all out on this, uh, this giant parking lot that we were on to make sure that we weren't bringing home weapons or explosives or anything that we had found while we were in sector. It wasn't that way in World War II. There's a, the famous scene in, in Band of Brothers where one of the officers, he's going through every house he goes through, he's grabbing all the, like, the silver and valuables and shipping it back home. And it it was kind of this free for all. If you came across it, you grabbed it. There was guys that would gr- get German weapons, guys that uh, took watches, uh, guys who did all this. You know, would go through the pockets of the the dead Germans and take anything of value off of them. And then when they go into a house or a a, a hotel, they were taking everything. So. It was much more common in World War II, and so maybe this idea got born, especially if you watched any of these shows, such as Band of Brothers or uh, anything, where you made the assumption that maybe after, you know, on his way home from World War II, he had brought home all these gold bars, these Nazi gold bars, whatever it might be. Again, to whether they're younger, preteen, teenage boys sitting around talking, building up this idea that there's this safe in this house this vault full of gold bars and cash uh it's again it's going to spark this idea within andrew lackey so who is andrew lackey andrew was born on october 29th 1983 in alabama to parents michael and sharon lackey he would later be described as quiet and while displaying no signs of mental illness it was believed he was on the autism spectrum his family would often say that he, that Andrew lived in a place that they called Andrew Land in his head, which I take to mean he had a distorted sense of reality based on his own mental view of the world, and we all know some people that have varying degrees of, of kind of living in their own land. There's there's some people without even mental illness, but just the way they were raised, um, they tend to kind of live in a world. I know there's different sayings of it. Uh, seeing the world through the rose-colored glasses or or the polydana uh, view of the world, whatever it might be, where they just see the world differently than other people. Uh, But sometimes, like in this case, it is possible, and doctors are later going to diagnose Andrew with Asperger's, that they just kind of have this different view of the world than than what normal people do and those closest to andrew said he just kind of lived in this world all the time he lived in his own little own little place in his head and this goes back to the time even as he was an infant his mother would say that he refused to nurse and almost starved to death as an infant and when a doctor suggested bottle feeding he would only drink from the bottle if he was looking away from the person giving him the bottle and now I raised three boys with bottle feeding, so I know that infants often, when you give them a bottle, like I just remember my kids just kind of like staring off at other things around the room as they were drinking, and I think more or less they were kind of bored. They just didn't always want to look at you. So when, when I read this, I immediately went back to raising my three boys and, and seeing them you know as i give them a bottle they're just kind of drinking and looking all around taking everything in around them so i i don't know that it's that uncommon for kids i don't know a lot i guess none of my boys i give them a bottle just sat there and stared at me but maybe a difference of they look at me from time to time and in this case andrew never looked at his mother so she just made note of that but again, I, I didn't find it that strange because that's kind of my experience with bottle feeding kids is that they they don't stare at the person giving the bottle. They kind of look all around while they're drinking. But uh, at age five, he struggled to decide which was his dominant hand and was somewhat ambidextrous, but mostly mediocre with both. And so when I read this, I kind of went, they said the doctors were worried that he wasn't developing a strong hand and that it was affecting his physical development, which I kind of scratched my head because it must have been something where there's people who obviously are right-handed, people who are obviously left-handed, and there's people who are ambidextrous and they're good with both. From the sounds of it, it was almost like he was bad with both of his hands. So if you've ever tried writing with your opposite hand and you're not ambidextrous, your writing is terrible. Same thing with whether it be throwing or whatever it might be. It sounds like maybe both of his hands... So he just didn't have a quote-unquote dominant hand that was good. He was just bad with both of his hands is how I read it, I guess, afterwards. And so the doctor actually suggested video games, and this was would have been in like the late 80s, uh, as a form of therapy that would force his brain to adopt a dominant side of his body. And it was said he was passive and nonviolent, but very antisocial and would turn away from people when they walked into the room. And this is, again, there, there are people out there that aren't very social, that don't want to be in groups. They're very introverted. Uh, so, yes, he will later be diagnosed with ha- having Asperger's, but it doesn't sound like he couldn't function. It just seemed like he had, it was more like he was, if the correct term is quirky, he had these quirks to him. And then that's part of his Asperger's. Uh, I get that. But again, you're not going to see Andrew walking down the street and and have a conversation with him if he if he allows it with his antisocial stuff and immediately assume he's got, you know, Asperger's or he's on the autism spectrum. He he was very high functioning. He just had these antisocial tendencies and, and these little things here and there that that made him different. Now Andrew and Derek's friendship would become key to this case, as it would later be said that, by Andrew's mother, that Derek took advantage of Andrew's lack of mental focus and manipulated him into buying things for him by selling his own items on eBay. And we will see that often. Where, and, and, and I'm not saying this is the case with Derek. This is this is a statement made by Andrew's mother. This is, uh, and it's something that's going to be kind of, somewhat refuted by. Andrew down the road here but when you've got a, a guy like Andrew who's who's got Asperger's he's got this friendship with Derek and by all means everything I could read was Derek didn't have Asperger's or anything there's sometimes where either knowingly or unknowingly that friend can take advantage of the other friend where Andrew was looking to try to keep this friendship and wanted to Impress or keep Derek happy and so it's unknown how much there was influence there Or how much it was just a natural thing where Andrew felt that he wanted to keep Derek as a friend He was going to buy things for him and, and different thing. And we see this in relationships uh, romantic relationships where Material items are used as, as a means of happiness of a means of keeping that person in the relationship uh, so Again, it it happens. I don't know how much of it would have been intentional on Derek's part. Uh, I don't think we'll ever know. It was just definitely something brought up by Andrew's mother at one point. uh, Worth discussing. And it would be learned later through a forensic examination of Andrew's computer that as early as January of 2005, Andrew was using the screen name Jacob to discuss with another user named Damien Six about an upcoming heist he had planned. And this... This event, remember, is gonna happen Halloween of 2005, so about 10 months before this goes down, uh, Jacob, and I, I think his screen name for eBay was something like Jacob McDeal. I wanna say. Uh, so he used Jacob quite a bit as different screen names for his stuff, and it didn't say anywhere in there whether Damien Six was identified. I, re- I referred to him as the anonymous computer user. Uh, Damien Six I I would assume if police were able to link this to Derek that that would have been part of the story so this Damien Six either didn't have any part in the crime at all or police never were able to identify who this Damien Six was but Andrew told Damien Six that he had done recon on the house of this old rich guy and assessed its vulnerabilities He stated he had acquired appropriate supplies and knew the house contained cash and gold. And finally, he would obtain a pizza delivery bag as part of his ruse to gain entry to the home. The address for the home that was searched was that of Charlie Newman. Now, not much is known about the exact plan that Andrew had for the evening, but he likely made a calculated decision to conduct his robbery on Halloween night. Uh, The night is known for strangers out walking around in areas they wouldn't normally be, so it's the one night of the year he would least likely be noticed. And this, this is important because people do things for a reason. When you're investigating a crime, almost everything that's done for the most part is done for a reason. And if you live in America on Halloween night in a neighborhood or an area of high traffic or something... There's gonna be a ton of kids and parents and teenagers and everything out walking around in neighborhoods. Nobody's really gonna question somebody dressed all in black or camel or anything like that that's walking through an area they normally wouldn't, or a neighborhood they normally wouldn't, because that's just part of Halloween. It's just an accepted practice. So if there's one night a week where or sorry, one night of the year where you can get away with being somewhere you aren't normally dressed in a way that you aren't normally that's halloween night so it definitely appears that he picked this for a reason and andrew rented a white nissan Altima and loaded it up with his tools for the evening this included an eight millimeter starter pistol a knife a police scanner an insulated pizza bag a stun gun a utility belt two flashlights two socks filled with nylon rope a sledgehammer six bottles of super glue two black gym bags, an axe, a hammer, a roll of duct tape, five screwdrivers, several packs of batteries, and a pair of night vision goggles. So this is your Mobile Oceans 11 kit that Andrew has put together and honestly just if you read it it's it's as if he's literally planned this this major bank heist, this major operation almost anything he could potentially run into or need he's got he's bringing along for this this so it definitely seems as if from the very beginning his plan was likely to try to take uh charlie newman somehow take him into custody tie him up something like that so that he could either torture him or just interrogate him to get some type of a combination into this vault or whatever it might be uh I guess he had some tools in case he needed his forces weigh in uh, along with them, but he's bringing enough stuff to definitely pull off uh, a a major crime. Now, he drove his mobile robbery, torture, and amateur safe cracking kit to Charlie Newman's home. And although friends would later say that Charlie would not hand out candy to trick-or-treaters, it's possible that Andrew didn't know that. And this falls back to the old... You know charlie was very introverted thing it, it just flat out said one of the sources that charlie would not hand out candy to trick-or-treaters and in america there's homes this way and at least where i live in minnesota on halloween night if you're handing out candy to kids you turn your exterior lights on as a sign hey come to the house i've got candy in here if you aren't gonna participate in the trick-or-treating. Usually you darken your house some ways that nobody can mistake the fact that you're either not home or you're not handing out candy that night. So it's possible that Charlie, at first, he had this pizza delivery bag. Maybe he was going to walk up to the house as if he delivered pizza to the wrong address, but with the pizza delivery bag, maybe Charlie would open the door. There's a possibility he was trying to dress as a pizza delivery guy on Halloween, which seems really strange because he'd be going door to door, so people would obviously not have ordered pizza, would be confused, but who knows? Uh, He's 22 years old this time, so he's not a kid. So he's definitely gonna stick out as an adult. So I don't know that he can pull off the trick-or-treating anyway, but maybe he was just hoping that because it was Halloween night, People are much more apt to open the door for strangers. If Charlie did participate in trick-or-treating, it'd be a very easy way to get the front door open and into the house. Uh, Now, the downside to that is there's a lot more people out moving around as eyewitnesses. There's a lot more people that could potentially stumble across your crime. So it's definitely a a risk-reward thing when it comes to picking Halloween night. But basically, what the police are able to find out is that the 22-year-old forced entry on the back door of the home and this is possibly after his ruse of trick or treating or pizza delivery failed uh, and Charlie had put on his pajamas and upon hearing the sound of the entry he called 911 from the home phone and instead of staying on the phone he kept it off the hook and the recording of that 911 call would actually be used as evidence in the case and as the dispatcher tried to get someone to come to the phone here she heard voices over the phone and this is what we've talked about in the past this is 2005 Yes, cell phones are in regular use at this point, but not everybody has them. And in most cases, people who are elderly and just didn't have a need for it for socialization probably didn't have one. And the home phones at this time, as they still do, have this advanced 911 system. So as soon as that phone call is connected to the 911 center, they know exactly which house the call is coming from and the dispatcher is their job to try to get information so i'm sure they started by trying to get somebody to the phone but then as they're hearing these voices they're listening to what's going on and they're saying most of the talking comes from charlie newman who kept asking the unknown intruder what he wanted he told them not to do stuff and to leave him alone and however andrew's voice could be heard on the recording asking where's the vault And officers were dispatched to the home around 7.34 p.m. And while they were en route, the dispatcher heard what sounded like gunshots, a struggle, and then more gunshots. And this information was relayed to officers on the way to the house. Now, I also read in source material that said that they only heard voices and never heard gunshots. So again, this is one of those cases where there's multiple different facts reported that are completely opposite of each other. So I don't know which one's true. But basically, officers are going to know the location of the home and they're going to know that there's some type of something going on at this home that doesn't sound right to the dispatcher. And it actually said that I think from the time of the 911 call till the time officers first arrived was only five minutes. So whatever happened between that 911 call and when police arrive, it's going to be a very short series of events here. When officers arrived they find the back door of the home was open and there's blood on the storm door. An officer at the front of the house stated he could see a body inside and officers entered the home through the open back door. They noted the smell of gunpowder in the area and found the body of Charles Newman on the living room floor in a puddle of blood. A set of bloody footprints led from the body out the back door of the home and the home was locked down as a crime scene. The puddle of blood on the floor was found to be from a combined 54 stab wounds and cuts that Charlie had sustained over his entire body. The stabbings include wounds to both of his eyes, his carotid artery, and his chest. He also suffered a single gunshot wound to his chest, one that appeared to have been fired at extremely close range to the body, and while the body was already on the ground and likely after Charlie had died. And this is something we haven't talked about yet, and we'll probably get into when it's more relevant. Uh, We see this sometimes with cases where it's supposed to be a suicide and there's a lack of what's called uh, stippling on the body and that's basically the when the powder comes out the end of a gun barrel the powder that's used to project the bullet it's basically hot burning powder and the and the stuff that comes out normally it just goes out in the air and that's that muzzle flash you'll see as a gun goes off that's that burning powder hitting the air. It's, 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 it's on fire. And uh, when you have a close contact gunshot wound, whether it's a gun that's held right up against the temple or right up against somebody's body, those flammable powder burns will actually burn the skin. You'll actually see little black specks of burnt skin all around the entry wound of the bullet, indicating that it's a close contact gunshot wound whereas if you're shot from distance by the time the the powder hits the air burns and dissipates it's not coming in contact with the skin it's just it goes out into the air dies off and then all you'll have on the body is that entry wound of the gunshot without any uh stippling on it at all so pathologists and medical experts look at body during an autopsy and they look at the gunshot wounds they can tell based on the stippling and the weapon used roughly how far away that gun was now after a certain distance they can't tell because there's either evidence of, of close contact or not but they can usually tell whether the gun's two inches away right held or held right up to the skin or if it's say six to 12 inches away, or once you start to get further away, that pattern gets further and further to the point that it dissipates and you don't see it at all. So they're actually going to see, and this was a combination um, of the close contact gunshot wound, and then it said the, the other side of the wound, it looked as if the, the bullet had hit the ground or something and, and basically bruised around the, the other side where the gunshot wound came out. So they assumed that this shot was fired while Charlie was laying on the ground on his side. It was a, a shot from side to side through the chest, and they thought that it most likely happened after Charlie died. And some of that can just be because the heart has stopped pumping, so there's not as much blood out of the at the site, the wound sites, and all that kind of stuff. So, pathologists going to get a pretty good idea that Charlie's attacked with a knife. That's what's actually going to kill him. And then he's going to, after he's succumbed to his wounds, he's going to be shot one time. And while investigators knew they had a homicide, they did not immediately know who the perpetrator was. Charlie lived alone, so there was no one missing from the scene. And with the open back door, the suspect could be anyone. And this is, again, because he lived alone, if he had lived with, say, one of his grandsons, or he, he had a live-in romantic partner or something like that who's now missing from the scene they become suspect number one right off the bat uh some type of a domestic disturbance between like i said whether it be grandson or adult child or a friend or a romantic interest or what whoever's normally in that house with charlie if they're missing after he's found dead they're number one suspect but because he lives alone yeah your suspect pool is still Initially, going to be those close to him, but at the same time, you realize he could have been targeted just because he, he's an older guy who lives alone. And with the back door open, that means anybody uh, is potentially a suspect at that point. So, while officers were still trying to figure out what they had at the crime scene, a call came into 911 from a Chevron gas station in nearby Madison, Alabama. So, this crime occurs in Athens, Alabama. And this is about 20 miles northwest of Huntsville, Alabama. And the Chevron gas station in Madison, this is a suburb of Huntsville. A 22-year-old male was calling 911 from the gas station to say that he was injured and needed medical assistance. Arriving medics and officers found Andrew Lackey sitting on the curb by a white Nissan Ultima. The car had what appeared to be blood on the exterior, and an officer looked into the Ultima and saw a pizza bag, police scanner, two handguns, and a knife with a broken tip, along with a lot of blood. And then it said there that Andrew lifted his shirt and had two gunshot wounds in his chest. Later, it just said one gunshot wound he was treated for, but no matter what, officers are going to, of course, going to ask where he was when he was shot, what he was doing when he was shot, and... Andrew tells them nothing. he He doesn't want to tell them where he was or how he'd been shot because of course he had committed a crime and while he was while he was shot, and he had to have known that that Charlie was probably dead at this point. And given the circumstances, officers had their dispatch check with neighboring agencies to see if anyone had the report of a shooting or stabbing and nearby Athens replied they were investigating a homicide that had just occurred. And now Andrew's thing was obviously he was shot and so he was trying to drive to a Huntsville hospital. What he doesn't realize is hospitals, at least by law in Minnesota, and I assume it's this way in most states, are required by law to contact the police if they have somebody come in with a gunshot wound. Just like, at least in Minnesota, auto repair shops are actually required by law to report if they find bullet holes in a vehicle. Uh, that could be involved in either drive-by shooting or some type of a homicide or, or gang-related violence. So and Andrew just getting to the hospital isn't going to get him off the hook. Police are still going to be called, and often when we had a case like this where you have a victim and then you believe that somebody else may have either been shot, stabbed, or injured during the crime, we would actually put out requests to the local hospitals to let us know if anybody came in with A gunshot wound a stab wound or whatever it might be as they would likely be the suspect in our case so it's very possible the police while they're checking with other agencies uh, also put out a call to the hospital saying hey if anybody shows up with with any wounds let us know Uh, and instead of he did since he didn't make it to the hospital it was this other madison police department that is going to contact them and or, or they're going to send out the thing saying he's going to be looking for a guy and athens is going to say yeah we think that's our guy uh, meanwhile the officers continue to search of the crime scene at charlie's house officers located two one dollar bills and a receipt from long john silvers near the back door of the home the receipt was for an order of chili cheese fries and a chicken sandwich a piece of metal possibly from andrew's stun gun was found inside the house and a bill of sale for a Rossi 38 caliber revolver was found near the mantle of the fireplace. And remember I mentioned the two handguns the officer saw in the Ultima? Well one is going to be the starter pistol that he brought along. The second is actually going to be this Rossi 38 revolver. And the bill of sale is going to list everything including the serial number. So very quickly they're going to know that in Andrew's car is the 38 revolver from Charlie's house so they're gonna have a pretty instant connection I mean they obviously already believe he's gonna be involved in this but they're gonna have that instant connection of he took something that is very easily traceable from the home away from the home he's caught with that item and during the autopsy the broken tip of the knife from Andrew's Ultima was found embedded in Charlie's skull so that knife that was sitting I think on the floorboards of the seat of the car it's missing its tip, and the broken matching part of that tip is found embedded in Charlie's skulls. And DNA analysis found Charlie's blood on clothing worn by Andrew that night, and Andrew's DNA was found in Charlie's house, and Andrew's shoes were matched to the shoe prints left in blood at the scene. So, I mean, this is, I mean, if you're writing a crime novel or you're uh, making a true crime movie, uh, even a fictional one, I think if you put all this evidence in your book or in your movie people would say it's too much evidence like that doesn't happen in real life but this this is true in this case you're going they're going to find basically everything they find in the house links back to Andrew everything they find in Andrew's car links back to Charlie Uh, it's, it's a pretty open and shut case from the very beginning now they are going to continue to obviously investigate what actually happened here So investigators looked for a connection between Charlie and Andrew and they were notified of Andrew's friendship with Charlie's grandson, Derek. So investigators interviewed Derek and he admitted that he had told Andrew that his grandfather was mean and rich and mentioned a vault with cash and gold. And Derek would tell investigators that two days before the murder, he had met with Andrew at Long John Silver's and Andrew had ordered a chicken sandwich and chili cheese fries. And so that's going to match back to the receipt found outside the door and Derek denied any involvement or knowledge of Andrew's plan to rob his grandfather. As I mentioned, the evidence was solid against Andrew, and soon a story of what happened that night was told by the crime scene. Charlie likely challenged Andrew after he entered his home uninvited and after he called 911. It was clear from the 911 call that Charlie tried to talk Andrew down, but at some point Andrew must have gone on the offensive, attacking Charlie with a knife, which forced Charlie to pull his 38 revolver and shoot Andrew, there was likely a struggle for the gun and two more shots were fired before Charlie succumbed to the stab wounds and Andrew took the gun and fired the last round into Charlie's chest while he was already down on the floor. And that's because this was a 5-shot revolver and when officers found the revolver in Charlie's or sorry, in Andrew's car, all 5 rounds in the revolver had been fired. So either Charlie shot 4 times at Andrew and hit him once or twice Or what's more likely is after they believe that Andrew tried to stun Charlie with the stun gun and maybe uh, Charlie produced this handgun which caused Andrew to attack him with a knife and and based on like the stab wounds to the eyes the overkill the 54 stabs the breaking the knife off in the skull this usually indicates severe rage and so the fact that this crime has gone so sideways the fact that andrew's been shot by by charlie it makes me think that charlie shot andrew which sent him into a rage whether he was shot once or twice i think there was a struggle over the gun gun goes off two more times and then maybe the gun gets dropped or tossed somewhere or something like that and andrew switches over to his knife and just begins stabbing Uh, Charlie, until there's no life left in Charlie, continues to stab Charlie, goes and picks up the gun, fires the last round from the gun into Charlie's chest, and then he leaves the scene, leaving behind his blood, the bloody shoe prints, and all that stuff. And then Andrew would have retreated from the home and attempted to drive himself to a hospital in Huntsville, but was forced to pull over and call for help for his gunshot injuries. Now, prior to his trial, Andrew was given a full medical and psychological exam. Doctors diagnosed him with Asperger's, a form of autism, but stated he was mentally competent to stand trial. And his trial began on February 25th, 2008. The prosecution had solid evidence and insisted that Andrew was driven by the idea of making a lot of money in this heist, and that he acted alone. The defense tried to downplay Andrew's capabilities and argued it was a robbery gone wrong that he had been tricked into doing by derek and and this is really i mean a i'm shocked it went to trial because this is going to be a death penalty case uh in alabama and i don't know if there wasn't a plea offered i couldn't find anything about that but usually in cases like this the prosecution is going to try to avoid a trial to save the state the money to save the chance even with all this evidence but this is maybe one of those cases where there was enough evidence that they knew They were going to win in trial and didn't offer a plea agreement. Again, I couldn't find either way, but it definitely seems that taking this to trial, if that was the choice of the defense, was was a terrible decision. Your only chance, which is what they're trying to do, is to try to show the jury that Andrew wasn't this stone cold killer, that maybe his Asperger's had a role in this and they'd take mercy on him or pity on him. And as I mentioned, Andrew was facing the capital crime of murder during a burglary and murder during a robbery, and his crimes were punishable by death. And facing the irrefutable evidence of his involvement, as I mentioned, his only hope was to get a sympathetic jury that would see his intent that day was not to kill Charlie, but just steal from him, and things went sideways, resulting in him getting shot and Charlie being stabbed and killed. However, at the end of the trial, the jury took only 2.5 hours to return a guilty verdict on all charges, and Andrew was sentenced to death. At his sentencing, he told the judge not to spare his life because it was over anyway, and he told the courtroom that Derek had nothing to do with the crime, a statement that caused Derek to cry and needed to be comforted by his parents. And we've talked about this several times over. There's a lot of times where... A prosecutor doesn't want to pursue the death penalty because they worry that the jury is going to have a difficult time sentencing somebody to death but this is one of those cases where the evidence was so strong that Andrew was involved in this crime that really there was no question the state all the state had to do was prove that the crimes occurred and prove that Andrew was the one that did that and it was a simple in this case and then the jury has to look at that and, and really They don't have much of a choice either. He committed the crimes. The evidence says so. The crimes are punishable by death. They sentence him to death. And he was sentenced to death via lethal injection under Alabama law. And this sentence drew the typical protest from people opposed to the death penalty, but Andrew's diagnosis of Asperger's added fuel to the fire. Andrew's mother had testified in the trial about how her son had always had trouble relating to others and felt his Asperger's contributed to his decision to commit the crime. And those against his sentence felt he was being put to death for something he didn't fully understand at the time and that wasn't right. Now, the only thing I will say is as I was researching this case, understanding there's going to be some question about his mental capacities. Because uh, I, I found the case more, more, I should say, I found more information about the case about his execution or his uh, death Sentence than I did the actual crimes or the case itself. So I knew that was going to be a lot of what was centered around the case the the way that he planned this out for Ten months the way that he loaded up that car with everything he thought and I had to rent a car so that it wouldn't be linked back to him if if somebody saw the car uh, he again the police scanner Everything was premeditated to be able to commit this crime. As I mentioned, it was almost like an Ocean's Eleven-style crime. Of course, I also understand he didn't go to that house that day wanting to kill Charlie. At least it doesn't appear that way. I mean, he took an 8 millimeter starter pistol. That's not really going to kill someone in, in any type of a, quote-unquote, gun battle. And he has the knife, which really, at that point... In a gun battle, the saying is, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So it definitely seemed like his whole hope was to be able to gain entry to the home, secure Charlie, get information about where the vault was, break into the vault, take the items, and go. And Now, I also didn't see anything about a mask or him trying to hide his identity, and that brings into question, I guess, that part of the mental planning. Maybe he did, and it just wasn't mentioned, but I guess that probably weighs onto the side of maybe he did have some mental deficiencies because he thought out this whole plan, but then what is he going to do afterwards? He breaks into this guy's house. The guy lets him take a whole bunch of gold bars and cash and just leave and, and nobody's going to be able to link. I mean, his police pretty quickly linked him to the crime through his grandson. They're not going to think that he's going to get linked to this crime after the fact. So, he had the capacity to plan out and execute the crime, he maybe didn't have the capacity to fully understand the, the long game, but this is, this is where again, we're, this case is so you can be on the fence one way or the other. Now Andrew's death penalty conviction was automatically upheld under Alabama law and was upheld by the courts. Andrew attempted suicide in prison and was unsuccessful and after a suicide attempt, he wrote a letter detailing how he wished to abandon all of their appeals and accept his fate and die via execution. However, a second appeal had already been entered on Andrew's behalf and he had to write another letter requesting the appeal be stopped and to no longer be represented by any advocacy groups on his behalf. And so what happened here was basically as soon as he got convicted and sentenced to death, there's a lot of anti-death penalty groups comprised of lawyers and uh, researchers and all kinds of uh, people that will jump in and on in this case andrew's behalf they will file these appeals it doesn't always have to be now there was an automatic appeal which is under alabama law i guess automatically right after the conviction there's an appeal just to check to make sure everything was done right in the trial but then there's going to be these additional appeals that. As we've seen, can sometimes go on for years and years and decades and decades that will be filed by these various groups on the person's behalf. And so, what Andrew didn't know is that the second appeal had already been filed on his behalf, and he basically had to write a second letter because he wrote one letter saying he wished to not make any further appeals and wanted to just be put to death. And they kind of said, Well, okay, but there's already an appeal out there, so what do you wanna do with this one? So he had to write another letter saying, withdraw that appeal and I'd like to die. Now, that same, I think it was the same advocacy group that had wrote wrote the second appeal, tried to get a judge to order Andrew to go through another psychological evaluation to see if he was capable of making this request, and the judge ruled it wasn't necessary, and that Andrew was of sound mind enough to make this decision. And this is gonna fall into a whole slew of of legal issues here as we've seen before if somebody's sentenced to death and they want to die if you deny them that are you denying them what they want are you denying them their right to die it just it becomes such a legal minefield When somebody wants to die, because you'll have people that are arguing, saying they can't be of sound mind if they want to die. But you have this person saying, I am of sound mind and you can't deny my request. I'm not putting any more appeals out there. I've been sentenced to death. And then then comes in the question of, is it cruel and unusual punishment to keep them incarcerated when they want to die, and they know they're going to die, and, and does, that, does that become an issue? So again, it, it's a complete and utter legal minefield when you get to this point. There were several delays in the process of executing Andrew because of legal battles surrounding the drugs used in the lethal injection process. Some pharmaceutical companies who manufactured part of the drug cocktail objected to their drugs being used in the procedure, and several times during lethal injections, there were failures for the drugs to act in their prescribed manner that led to long, painful, prolonged, or failed executions. In the case of one heavy IV drug user, medical staff failed to obtain a proper IV or catheter connection, and the drug did not enter the bloodstream, which caused the execution to fail. In Alabama, now in 2023 is close to abandoning lethal injection and going back to the gas chamber and and this is an issue. Uh, there's a lot of heavy IV drug users that end up in prison some end up on death row. and when somebody uses and abuses IV or drugs via uh, needles for so long, they actually collapse. A lot of their veins and this is why they sometimes have to shoot up between their toes they, sh- they shoot up between their fingers fa- they find ways to introduce the drug to their because the main veins in their body that most people would use if you went to the hospital and they needed to give you an iv they've all been had needles in them so much they've collapsed they don't they don't support a needle or a catheter anymore so when and I, I saw this when I was a police officer and I had paramedics trying to deliver drugs to IV drug users, they'd have to find places on the body that they could access veins that nor, weren't, weren't normally accessed because you would see these scars all over their veins where they had introduced drugs to their system for so long by needles that, that just putting an IV in there just didn't work anymore. So this became a problem because if your only way to introduce the drugs... For the execution is via IVs and they can't their vessel or their blood vessels can't support an IV or catheter how do you go to, to, to killing them then you have this issue with the pharmaceutical companies I, not per se the drugs that actually end the person's life were the, the issues because I'm sure those companies knew if they sold drugs to the corrections that this was going to be used for execution but there's other drugs in that in that drug cocktail that aren't normally used just for execution, but the corrections departments are buying up these drugs and then I'm sure these pharmaceutical companies were getting sued as a part of these bad executions by the families of the people executed or whoever it might be and they're sitting there saying, whoa, 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 we never even agreed to have our drugs used in these executions. So they're withdrawing their drugs for executions which forces the Department of Corrections to try these different drug cocktails that are even less effective, and it just created this huge issue around lethal injection uh, executions around. uh, This started in the late 2000s and into the 2010s, but after all this was worked out, Andrew's execution did go forward on July 25th, 2013. He had no last words and was put to death without issue at 6.25 p.m. And this is one of those cases that draws fire from both sides of the death penalty battle. As we talked about it, on one hand, the evidence is undeniable that Andrew killed Charlie and did so during the commission of a crime that qualifies as a death penalty case in Alabama. On the other hand, Andrew did have mental issues via his Asperger's that can be argued that contributed to his plans, but as I mentioned, there's also the argument that his actions were done as a part of a well-calculated plan. And then to top it all off, Andrew asked to be put to death, which is his right to do so, and denying him that is denying him justice, but at the same time it's catering to his wishes to end his punishment. So, again, this case is all over the place with pro-death penalty, anti-death penalty, people's rights to die, however you want to put it, there's every legal side of it is, is in this case. And no matter what side you find yourself on what we can agree on is this is a tragic case in which two lives one a war hero and a man who wanted to be left alone to die when it was his time and the other a young and mentally troubled man both their lives were ended over money as a final note none of the source material ever revealed if there was a vault in the first place and if so if there's anything in it it's likely charlie and andrew died over a fantasy concocted in the minds of young boys And as I mentioned in the beginning, the coverage of this case was more about the senseless murder of Charlie Newman. That's what I was trying to portray in this episode. If you, if you look this up online, you won't even find 5% of anything that is involved being related to, to Charlie Newman. 95% of this case is about Andrew. It's about, rightfully so it's about his actions that night but most of it is about what happened after uh, he was sentenced to death so i really wanted to focus the story as much as i could on what limited information we had about charlie newman Uh, because he was a man who remember in 19 he jumped out of an airplane into enemy territory to bring about an end to the evil that was adolf hitler and the nazi party and I, i just again i wanted to bring it back that's why it's named charlie newman i don't tend to i don't think i have yet named any of my cases after the suspect because i want to bring the notoriety to the, the innocent to the victims of these cases and a big true blue crime thanks to charlie newman for his service and our condolences to his family and friends that is the case of charlie newman thank you guys for listening uh, stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true crime at gmail.com You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.